0: It's good to be with you again. I'm sure you remember the outline from the last sermon I preached on the first, first uh, 11 verses of chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes. What I, well, we'll read the word, and then I want to give you a little bit of a summary to catch you up on the book of Ecclesiastes, which is not ordinarily understood very clearly among Bible believers, oddly. But we're going to look at the second part. If you ask me back 17 more times, we can make it through the whole book. And I am working actually on a commentary with Meredith M. Klein. And it has not gone that well because I've been so busy for the last six years since I suppose. They say I retired, but it didn't really happen. And uh, so now I'm taking a, this year I'm clearing everything off my desk and I'm gonna focus on it. So please pray if you think, think about it, pray for that. Let's pay attention now. First of all, we actually want to go to the New Covenant and then to our text in Ecclesiastes. We want to go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And thus far in the New Covenant Word, we turn then to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We begin at verse 12. Again, the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, passing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind, and for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I remember how heartening it was to preach from Ecclesiastes the several times that I was able to preach um, live during the pandemic, There, there, there was few and far between, but when I was able to, I thought, you know, this pandemic brings a point to the craziness, the the kinds of things you just can't, you can't predict, the things that happen, and some of them are quite awful, as well as the many blessings that the Lord laces our experience with. But that brought it to a point. But the fact is that the world is always out of whack. It's out of whack um, the minute we're born into it. And, and then we find out that we're out of whack. We're not in accord with the way God created us to be originally. And so the world is precisely like that. Now, there are three basic interpretations of the book of Ecclesiastes. The first is by unbelievers who would say that the writer, the preacher, Koheleth, is um, a cynic. Life is meaningless, it's absurd, we can't make sense of it, and we know that that can't be true because the writer tells us regularly to fear God and keep his commandments. Then the evangelist the preacher as evangelist is the way that the majority, the vast majority of commentaries that are in print today um, take this book. So it's the preacher saying, look, here's what life would look like if you don't have faith, if you don't fear God. But, but have faith because this is not the, way, the only way you can look at life. It's not absurd. It's not meaningless. But the problem with that is that this book is written to God's people. It's written to us. So it can't be just a book of evangelism. Now, what does it make does it have all kinds of evangelistic possibilities? Yes, absolutely. But the fact is, it's meant to be biblical realism. In other words, we, ex- we experience meaninglessness, a sense of meaninglessness, a sense of the absurd, a sense of cr- the craziness of life. Ma- America presently is uh, giving all kinds of proof of that. And so we know that what we see and what we experience is what God knows we see and experience. So in other words, this is for us, and we see the world in its craziness, and this is what Koheleth brings us. But he also, as I said, laces our experience with, with his goodness, his kindness. And so he says, eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy it. It's temporary, but enjoy the things that God has given you in the midst of the difficulties of this present evil age. Now the word koheleth is a very interesting one and it is sometimes very difficult to translate Hebrew and Greek words into English. And so preacher is really not what he was. Similar and he, he he did things that preachers have to do, but we can think of him more as an assembler, someone who is gathering proverbs and gathering them and writing them as both truth and also crafted beautifully so that we would remember it. Remember, the ancient world did a lot of hearing and had very little books. They had very little at their disposal. They was very expensive, and they were in scrolls back in the Old Testament. And so they had to make sure, God made sure that his word is written in such a way that it's memorable. And so he wrote beautiful words and gathered them up So he was an assembler of the people as well as a gatherer of wisdom. And then he presents it to to us, his people. And this is the way God wants us to receive it then. He was a kind of a spiritual gardener. Now when we look at the motto, vanity, that word is totally inadequate, especially in um, in modern English, to cover what hebel means. Hebel is a mysterious word, but its, its semantic range of meaning is tremendous. And so when we think of vanity, we probably think of, um, you know, when I comb my hair before I get out of the car when I'm preaching, um, someone might think, wow, he's really vain. Well, that's a fairly superficial thing, and I'm quite sure I've been vain along with uh, most of the rest of the world, but the, the meaning of it is far profounder than that. And so my friend, Meredith M. Klein, who was a, a tremendous Semitic linguist, he came up with the, and you know usually the academics aren't great with, with thinking about a preaching vocabulary, but he came up with this great word, which you may remember from two years ago, it's wacky. And wacky is a perfect English word to cover the semantic range. Now it might not cover everything, but it comes really close in English, because if someone's a little wacky, what are they? Well, they're a little bit out of sync with the way human beings ought normally to act. And if something is out of whack, like let's say one of my tires is, you know, usually when I go- need to be someplace on time, the little symbol that I need air in my tires comes up on my dash once a year. And so it means my tires are out of whack. And if, I, if they get too low, it's going to really affect my driving as well as wear out the tire. And so being out of whack is a good way of thinking about that word vanity. And now, if you take and go back to the motto, which is in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and put wacky in, here's what Meredith Klein comes up with, wackiest wackiness, says the preacher, wackiest wackiness, all is wacky. Or, he says, you could say for New Englanders, wicked, wacky, (laughs) except in this case, wicked is not a positive um, adjective. It's uh, wicked, it's sinful wackiness. It's out of whack because of the first sin, the sin of Adam, um, the first Adam. And the second Adam alone is adequate to take away that wackiness. Now... Vanity, then, hebel, this word that I said has a wide semantic range, is, guess how many times that this is found in the book of Ecclesiastes? 38 times. When something's used that much in just 12 chapters, the Lord is saying, pay attention, because this is a very important word. And so hebel, is um, it means things are enigmatic, they're difficult to figure out, they're, they're frustrating. They don't go the way that we think they ought to in the way that God designed them. They're perplexing. They're, they're mysterious. And they're also there's the idea of fleeting. Things pass quickly. Everything in our life, and especially those blessings, are, are passing quickly, not to be trusted in because they're there to bless us, but not for us to love. And so then... Under the sun is the other thing that continues to uh, be repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Guess how many times? It's there 28 times. So you have 38 and 28. These are the two biggies for paying attention. And what we normally think of under the sun, it's great to see the sun, by the way, and and enjoy it today because it's not going to be out most of the rest of the week and it's going to rain. But... uh, we think, well, that just means ordinary life, right? It's what's happening under the sun. Well, think about what ordinary life is. It's actually under the the curse and wrath of the living and true God. This is a sobering reality. So when we think of under the sun in this book, Remember what Paul says, that we're under the wrath and curse of God. And we, by nature, are suppressing the knowledge of God that he is our creator and has sent his only son to redeem sinners from sin. And so it's easy for us to think of it as just ordinary life. No, there's nothing ordinary about life in a fallen world. We're under his wrath and curse. And so this is written to us to, as biblical realism to say, people of God... I know as your God what you face in this life. And this is it. This is a a beautiful, poetic, memorable depiction of it. But you can navigate it by trusting me. Enjoy the blessings. Those come from me too. But don't forget, when the bad things happen, I'm in control of everything. And ultimately, as we heard in our prayer this morning, for our good. It's for your good, says the Lord. And this is why I've given you this book, so that the bad things will not surprise you and you won't take them as if I don't love you. Now, the structure of the book is very simple, actually. It's after the motto, and then there's a closing at the end from 8 through 12 in Chapter 12. We have Cycle 1, which we're in now, and that is Work Nullified and Wisdom Frustrated, and asking the question, well, what's the use, if they both if they both are experiencing vanity, hevel, then what's the use? And there is a use, but we'll get to that. Then the second, and that goes through three eight, so one three to three eight, and then the second cycle is three nine through six seven, and then that takes just work and says what profit is there in work? And then the final cycle, which is the longest of the book, goes from six eight to 12.7, and that is, what profit is there in wisdom? And so, work and wisdom. And as you think about wisdom, we and we looked at this, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapters three and four, we think about wisdom and we think, well, our, we have limited wisdom. All the things we do in life, everything from cooking breakfast to building a church building, it takes wisdom but is that ultimate wisdom? And we see that there are two, two wisdoms in a way. There's the wisdom of wisdom, and that's really what we're looking at here. And so imagine yourself to be a brilliant scholar, to have amazing knowledge, to be a genius, to have an IQ way up over 140, and all the equipment to, to explore anything you want, including lots of money and people to help you explore and discover the world. Well, that's exactly the kind of person that Solomon was. And the writer is taking Solomon, who is well known to his readers in the Old Covenant and to us, and he's saying, put yourself in the place of Solomon. I want you to think of being Solomon, and I'm going, to, I'm going to make you sort of reenact his life and his quest for the value of wisdom and the value of work. And so we have five points. I'm breaking orthodoxy here with five points, not three. And um, it would be, first of all, the quester. Who is is on this quest for wisdom and work, the meaning of it? And then... Um, The quest itself, we'll look at that for a moment, and then an appraisal of this quest. What's the result of all of this searching for wisdom and the value of work? And then we will look at two proverbs which sort of make a memorable point of what we're saying up to that point. And then, so what? What do we do with this as believers today here in Laconia, New Hampshire? And so the first, is a kind of self-intro and assessment is saying, who is the best man to make this quest for wisdom? Who is the the best kind of person? And of course, we see that it's a royal person because royal personages have power and they have resources. And it's a specific royal person, it's Solomon. And so Solomon is the perfect man for this quest. But what's ironic is that in the ancient world in which this was written, there were royal testaments they were part of every kingship no matter where they were in the middle east and there would have been these royal testaments and of course what they do is they glorify the king and of course solomon was glorified and yet he finds that in with all of his resources his wisdom his knowledge and his work that he's frustrated that it comes to nothing it's vanity it's empty It's mystical. It's untrustworthy. And so this is a little bit different kind of Royal Testament. But when we look at the positive powers of Solomon, we see that he, of anyone on earth, is most likely to find satisfaction in the world that we live in, in its work and in wisdom. He's the most likely God, and this comes from 1 Kings 4, gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So this is a poetic way of saying there's no one on earth at his time that was like him in terms of wisdom and understanding. But royal propaganda ends, as we see, in nothing. It's not that impressive. So you see the writer is taking, especially in that culture, and this would have been an astonishing way for King Solomon to be thinking, for any king with all of these resources, and this is what Solomon is doing. And he had the greatest wisdom and knowledge in the world at the time. We noticed that know that from Queen, Queen of Sheba was deeply impressed, and she was an incredibly impressive and wealthy woman herself and she came to visit him. And we're told again in 1 Kings 4 that Solomon spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And so that's the quester, the best man for the job. But what is the quest? Now, that was from verse 12 where it says the preacher, I the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Then in verse 13, um, we, we hear these words. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. And so the quest itself is an unhappy business. That's what he's telling us. But he's telling us, first of all, that he applied his heart to this, that he was um, very careful to look deeply into work and and its value and wisdom and its value. So he paid great attention. He inspected things carefully. It's interesting, I've just been watching a great um, Jean Le Godard movie from way back, and I think it was in the 70s, um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And he's a perfect detective because Alec Guinness, who's smiley, goes onto a crime scene. And he of course sees things that nobody else sees, even the, the chief detective misses those things because he is brilliant at observing. Things And this is exactly what Solomon is saying he, he does. The, the preacher, Koheleth, is one that really applies himself to search things out in the profoundest and most detailed way. The same words for search out is used of the spies who went into Canaan to see what kind of a land it was. And it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came back with the report. And, of course, we know they were too timid to go except for Caleb. But so searching out carefully looking at the way things are in this fallen world. And then he acknowledges that this searching ability is a gift of God. God has given me this ability, okay? And he ordains, however, frustration for his own sovereign purposes. What are you going through today? The only thing bad that's happening to me is I'm getting old. But We all are, of course, and some are older than others, and some have more infirmities than others, some have more troubles than others. And this, but everyone has trouble because ultimately you may live the, the most carefree life, you will die. At the end, there's always an end to human life in this world. And so, what God is reminding us of is this that He is in charge of our frustrations and the things that puzzle us and that hurt us sometimes. He's in charge of all of it. That's a profound and important thought. And he, kind of in the center of the book in Ecclesiastes 7.14, will say this. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him had to laugh this morning because today was supposed to be cloudy according to the weather report and almost every hour you see a little symbol, all cloud, 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 and then four o'clock the sun comes out. Hmm, the sun was out on most of my trip up here. So we can't even tell what's gonna happen in the next 24 hours. But what he's saying is that I'm in control. This is of course the great message of the Bible is that God is in control of all of our lives. But particularly when we enjoy life, and things then suddenly don't go well, we have to remember that God is also the author of those things. That's not easy to accept when things go badly. But the writer is telling us this. God has made the one as well as the other. And no wonder then that, that the writer here is, is saying this is an unhappy business. This is an unhappy business. The a new King James says, a burdensome task. The King James says, sore travail. And the New Jerusalem Bible, which I don't normally recommend reading, but it has some lively language sometimes, says, a wearisome task. It involves all that goes on in the world. I noticed recently that the, the union leader is combining, and this is for economics, not because of the Lord's Day, but combining Sunday news with Saturday. Saturday was shrinking. It was getting down to like seven pages or so. Now they put it all in one, and it comes out on Saturday. And the Wall Street Journal is the same. So Sunday is clear, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. That's a great, that's a great blessing. So there, there are blessings, but the fact is that when you read the newspaper, you will see just how wearisome a task it is to consider what's going on in the world. Now, I'm always happy for human interest stories because it kind of lightens things up but it's better to read your Bible first, and especially this book of Ecclesiastes, to take it into mind, take it, keep it in mind as you look out there at the wide world and see what's happening. And it's an interesting thing, as a media ecologist, I always ask myself the question, and people ask, is there more evil happening in the world now than there was prior to the Internet? And I would say, well, probably. There were times, like look at World War II, when there was more evil happening. And then after that, there was a period of somewhat relative peace. So there are ups and downs. But the fact is that we know too much in instantly. And that's why I'll see people get depressed about the situation in the world, the situation in our politics, in our government, in our culture generally. And I will remind them that probably you need to expose yourself to less of it. So I'm so thankful for the union leaders not being published anymore on Sundays. But the fact is that it's a wearisome business to to look at the world around us. And we need to be reminded again that God, however, is in control. And so, what then is the wisdom of wisdom? The wisdom of wisdom, and this is God's wisdom, is that our wisdom is limited, His is infinite. And if we think our wisdom is not limited, as he says in 1 Corinthians, he will show that our wisdom then makes us fools. And so the wisdom of wisdom is that God's wisdom alone is ultimate. Now ours, and we won't get into this much here, but he gets into it in this whole section, it doesn't mean that either wisdom, our wisdom, the way that we do things and learn things in the world, and that our work is useless. But the point is that it's very, very limited. And so how do we appraise then the quester and his quest? Well, if you look at verses 14 and 17b, 14, so 14 says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. So he's been reading his daily newspaper. And behold, all is hebel, all is out of whack and striving after wind. All is vanity. And then if you look at 17b, he says, and I should have read 17a, actually, when I made the point about the wisdom of wisdom. He said, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So we looked at both sides of the picture, and I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. It's like herding cats. It's, it's a futile effort. And that's where the word futile actually is a good Translation uh, for out of whack or Hebel or vanity. And so he finds himself then frustrated, perplexed, and fleeting. Fleeting, the world, its blessings are fleeting. Thank God, its sufferings too are fleeting. But does this sound like your experience as a Christian? Sometimes I think one of the greatest things that people told me, and it's why I want to write this commentary is that this was encouraging because I always thought maybe it's sinful that I get discouraged and find life frustrating, perplexing, and fleeting. And the book is telling us, the Lord is saying, no, this is, this is the way the world really is and the way that you really experience it. The difference, though, between you and the unbeliever is that you fear God in the midst of it. And in your struggle, you have him. Or he's saying it to you, in your struggle, you have me. You have the living and true God. And so that makes the whole thing completely different than what it would be otherwise. And of course, this is where we can bring in evangelism. and We can talk to people about the way things actually are and the way things can be with faith in the living and the true God. And so there's a vexation of spirit. There's a a sense of restlessness. It's just the opposite of the Sabbath rest. And what we do on the Lord's Day, what we're doing right now is we're taking a break from our life in this fallen world and we're resting and we're getting a foretaste, an hors d'oeuvre, as it were, of the feast that's coming. Everlasting life begins now, but it's not consummated until the day of resurrection and judgment. And so that's what, in a sense, while it doesn't talk about that, um, explicitly in most of Ecclesiastes. There's no mention of Christ. There's no mention even of the of Yahweh, of the covenant name of God. But it's sort of, it's, it's creating a longing in us for what we see fully revealed in the New Testament, which of course is the Christ of Scripture. And so all wisdom then ultimately is unsatisfying. It's unsatisfying. It's, it's not going to give us ultimate satisfaction. And there are two confirming proverbs. Now, I've chosen to take these individually, these confirming proverbs, that's, that basically sum this up in a memorable way. And so the first one is in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, here's a wonderful example of how we can not only understand something about the modern world, but use this for evangelism. Think about the Green New Deal and all these things. Now, I'm not not going to tell you which party I vote for for generally or who I'm voting for in this next election if it turns out the way it looks like it's going to turn out to be. The point is that Green New Deal and all utopianism, Marxism, there's loads of neo-Marxism now in our school system uh, throughout the United States, and that has one thing in common with all other projects like the Green New Deal, and and um, the welfare state. It's basically trying to make the crooked straight. So there's a laudable, let's say, instinct there. You want to make things right. You want perfect justice. You don't want any pollution. And you want to actually solve the problem of sickness and death. We can do that with enough R&D. We can solve the problems, all the problems of the world. And there are, believe me, a lot of people out there in the tech tech and medical world, on the scientific world generally, that believe this. They believe they can solve all the problems that we have. And what the Bible is saying is, no, the crooked, what is crooked, cannot be made straight. Later on, he'll talk about the crook and the lot. And I always used to think, wow, that's talking about thievery. No, it's talking about the fact that uh, things don't turn out the way we think they ought to. Life is very imperfect in a fallen world. And so this is the way. We can't can't change things the way that we think we can. And our hubris uh, has to, first of all, be humbled by the fact that we can't do it. The Bible tells us this from beginning to end, that the only solution to the world's imperfections, its crime, its sin, and its death, is Christ. No other solution. It's him and him alone. Foolishness to the Gentile, and it's foolishness to everyone because it is the wisdom of God in its ultimate expression, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the second proverb, verse 18, and this brings this, um, this pericope, this preaching portion to an end. It says, for in much wisdom is much, much, much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And it's like, wow. You know, this is it's sobering. It's full of grief and loss. In Ecclesiastes 2, we read this, What has a man from all his toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now, I want you to know I don't go around looking at my shoes all day. There's much joy in life, and he's not saying this. If you read the whole book, because this is in the context of many places where he actually says, eat, drink, and be merry. And not for tomorrow we die, but eat, drink, and be merry as my temporary blessing to you in the midst of, of life's difficulties. But here he's reminding us, though, that an ultimate assessment of the way things are leave us in Hebel. So there's no ultimate or lasting value in work and wisdom, it all comes to grief in a fallen world. And as Meredith Klein sums it up, he says, work in vain, wisdom in pain. And so why work and why seek wisdom? Well, here's where I want to, it's funny, the last time I stood in this pulpit, I was reading George Herbert. And so The Pulley is one of his great poems. And uh, the pulley is, uh, is, a pretty, is, pretty, is pretty amazing what he says here. But listen to this poem in light of just what we've been saying. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessing standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. And so God's pouring out his blessings upon the world, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when He first made us after His own image. In the second stanza, so strength first made away, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all His treasure, rest at the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both would losers be. Now, if you remember back in Genesis, what does God invite us into after the six days of creation? He rests, doesn't sleep, of course. He he stops and admires the work that he has done. And then he invites us to enjoy that rest. But the fall of Adam interrupts that process. It breaks us away from God. It turns us as rebels against him. And so rest is that which he's not going to give us. He's not going to let us rest if we're in rebellion against him because he wants us for himself. So he doesn't want us to worship his gifts or any of the good things he's given to us um, in in this present world. And so the fourth stanza is this. Yet let him keep the rest. You can keep everything. And there's a pun there, of course. Not the rest, but let them keep the rest. All the other things. But keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. So in other words, when we get tired of life and its troubles and difficulties, he's saying, the, the goal is that this which I put in your lives, frustration, weariness, restlessness, you'll turn to me. He wants us for himself, ultimately. This is exactly what the whole book, or the whole Bible, but the whole book of Ecclesiastes is telling us. And that's why it ends with the great motto, fear God and keep his commandments. And so... Why work and seek wisdom? Because in God's world, both are important. They're valuable. He made us to be creative, to do things, and to to live in community and to create and do things for others. I was actually looking at your chairs here, which I didn't see the last time, and I was like, Wow, this looks like something that the mouse man in Yorkshire would have uh, carved. These are really quite quite beautiful. And that's work is it's valuable. But it's temporary. Those Chairs will not last forever. And then the wisdom that went into making them and and gathering various cultural forms in those carvings, all of that, that wisdom of how to put a chair together and how to carve it is is valuable. All of these things are valuable, and especially, of course, in the Lord, the work that we do in the gospel ministry, the work that we do as Christians in this world, um, helping, encouraging one another, spreading the good news of the gospel, all of that has value, but that's temporary, though of course gospel work will have an eternal consequence. But here we're saying there is no ultimate success uh, or satisfaction in this world. I love what Gordon Ketty, who commented on this book, uh, didn't take the same perspective exactly that Meredith and I are taking, but he he said this, he said, there is no God but consumption and the admin are his prophets. Boy, if this isn't the modern world, every time I'm on the web and go someplace, an ad pops up. It must dozens and dozens of them a day. I'm sure that's your same experience. And that's what the world wants us to believe is worth pursuing. And Paul in Romans says this, also using this word futility, which, by the way, that and the, and the verse that we read where he uses futility in, um, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 is the only two places where we can see that Paul makes a direct connection with the book of Ecclesiastes because that Greek word is used in the Greek translation that they used back in the Old Testament of the Old Testament books. And so he says this, for the creation was subjected to futility, you can say to Hebel. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in, the hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so that's what God gave us. And think about the way that he gave it to us. He gave it to us through a criminal's cross and a criminal's death. Oh, man, that's... Is that wisdom? It's God's wisdom. It's not ours. We would never have conceived of anything like this. But his death upon the cross is the ultimate wisdom of God, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe. And here he comes into this world, dies as a criminal, in order to make what's wrong with us right, in order to make what's crooked about us straight. He's done it. He completed it. He says, Paul says earlier in Corinthians, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you see, this is the wisdom of wisdom. This ultimate wisdom enables us to use our human limited wisdom in ways that bring glory to God. And use our limited but real work as a way to bring glory to God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so remember, brothers and sisters, that that's the reason that everything is going on in your life, the good and the bad, It's all being used by God to bring you into communion with him. That is your ultimate treasure through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may you be encouraged, whatever, I don't know many of you in this room, I don't know what you're going to be facing in this week, but whatever you face, praise God for the blessings and fear him in the midst of the difficulties, having your treasure in Christ and knowing that ultimately, Thankfully, this life comes to an end and we will go into his presence forever and be raised from the dead on the third day at the end of history. I shouldn't say on the third day. He was raised from the dead on the third day for us to be raised at the end of history in the glorious new bodies and perfected souls that he will give us at that time. And so let's thank him for that wonderful reality and future.